Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Today's subject is Dr. Henry Heimlich. I'm sure that name rings a bell for most of you as the creator of the Heimlich Maneuver for Choking. In fact, June 1st was National Heimlich Day in the US. But I would also guess that most of you don't know that he is a thoracic surgeon and the inventor or creator of a number of procedures and devices that bear his name. Dr. Heimlich is also a bit of a controversial figure and his biggest detractor is his own son. We'll get to all of that, and there's a lot of interesting stuff, so let's get to it. Henry Judah Heinlich was born February 3, 1920, in Wilmington, Delaware, in the U.S., and grew up in the suburbs surrounding New York City. He did his undergraduate studies at Cornell in Ithaca, which I have visited and will say is a beautiful city, and went to med school at Weill Cornell Medical College, which is in New York City. So this is all pretty standard and unexciting to this point, right? Well, he was in medical school on December 7, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. To quote the U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, as it was the date of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which brought the Americans into World War II. All medical students had to join the military to ensure enough medical personnel, and Dr. Heimlich chose the U.S. Navy Reserve, a choice that would impact his life and career in some interesting ways. But at this point in the story, he continued his training, doing a surgical internship at Boston City Hospital, which sounded challenging to say the least, as there weren't a lot of supervisors around as many were off to war. By the fall of 1944, Heimlich went on active duty, working in military facilities stateside. Then in January of 1945, he was sent to Washington, D.C., and offered a prolonged extra-hazardous overseas mission in China, which was voluntary and connected to a secret project. Sounds like something out of a movie, right? Well, the events surrounding this secret project actually would get turned into a movie, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It turns out that Dr. Heimlich was sent to U.S. Naval Unit 4, located in Inner Mongolia behind Japanese lines. This was the most remote American-backed clandestine military training base in China, and he was assigned to the hospital there along with other MDs. This was connected to something called SACO, the Sino-American Cooperative Organization, set up by Roosevelt to gather key intelligence from China, train Chinese guerrilla forces, and prepare for a ground assault by Allied forces. The Office of Strategic Services was in charge, which was the first U.S. intelligence agency and would later become the CIA. In 1953, a movie called Destination Gobi was about a unit of weather observers stranded behind enemy lines in Inner Mongolia, and their inspiration was this Seiko organization. Okay, while Heimlich was stationed at this remote site, he set up a rudimentary OR, even creating his own sterilizer, giving his own anesthesia, and operating with only a nine-month internship under his belt. He even trained Chinese national soldiers to become medics. In his autobiography, Heimlich described some of the diseases he saw, many of which were rare in the U.S. or else treated at a much earlier stage. One of the ones he talked about most was trachoma, which is a bacterial infection of the eye that can lead to scarring and eventually blindness if not treated. He came up with the idea of mixing the sulfa antibiotic he had on hand with Barbasol shaving cream to create a topical treatment and used it on dozens of patients in his time there, saving them from losing their sight. But the patient that seemed to have the greatest impact on him, and one that would come into play later in his career as inspiration for one of his inventions, was a soldier who had been accidentally shot in the chest. Despite his best efforts to save him, he could not drain the chest cavity enough to stop the hemorrhaging and the patient died. Heimlich vowed to make amends to him, but at the time had no idea how. So in June 1946, he returned home and struggled to get an internship, as so many young doctors were returning home too. Eventually, he got a year of residency at Mount Sinai in New York. One quick anecdote that he shares about this which made me laugh as it is so different from training today. The residents received no pay at all, 
but lived at the hospital and had their own dining room, which was served by waiters. Okay, following this year, he went on to Bellevue Hospital in New York, a hospital founded in 1736 and the oldest public hospital in the U.S. Another side note, it's credited with pioneering the concept of an emergency room in 1869 and was the first hospital to receive patients by horse-drawn ambulance. Fans of the TV series The Nick may have seen this portrayed. Once his training was complete, Heimlich qualified in general and thoracic surgery, setting up a private practice and working at Mount Sinai and Montfiore hospitals. It was early into his practice that he developed an interest in patients with damaged esophagi, plural of esophagus, who were not able to swallow food. These patients would be restricted to a liquid diet which would enter the stomach through a tube on their abdomen. Heimlich came up with a surgery that he called the, quote, reversed gastric tube operation, which can be described like this. Basically, you take the lower part of the stomach, called the antrum, which is not acid-producing, make a tube from it, and along with its blood supply, rotate it upward and attach it to the throat, bypassing the damaged esophagus. This, in fact, becomes the new esophagus, and since it doesn't produce acid, there's no acid reflux. It's actually a pretty brilliant surgery, and I'll put up a diagram on Twitter and Facebook to show you how it works. Heimlich describes a couple of cases, including one patient named Virginia Dixon, a lady that accidentally swallowed lye, a caustic chemical, damaging her esophagus and leaving her unable to eat. She lived like this for 29 years before this surgery allowed her to eat food again. The story was picked up in the media and made Heimlich pretty famous for developing such a groundbreaking surgery. There's only one problem. He didn't invent it. Dr. Heimlich's first operation on dogs was done in 1955. However, the procedure had actually been done on humans by a Romanian surgeon named Dr. Dan Gavrilou starting in 1951. He'd even published on it. However, this being the 1950s and the beginning of the Cold War era, Heimlich claimed he was not aware of Dr. Gavrilou's work. The two actually met in 1956, after Gavrilou wrote to him, and they performed an operation together in Romania. And Heimlich did give Gavrilou credit in a paper in 1957 and in his autobiography, but there remains some controversy over Heimlich's claim to the operation. It is now sometimes known as the Heimlich-Gavrilou reversed gastric tube operation, to give them both credit. So the next major invention for Heimlich involved chest tubes. In the 1960s, chest tubes were attached to suction machines, either on the wall or the floor, and collection tubes, which were cumbersome and limiting to patients as well as being a bit dangerous. This made them impractical on the battlefield, and Heimlich was thinking about his patient way back in Mongolia with the bullet wound. After some tinkering, he came up with a flutter valve, which allowed air and fluid to drain away from the chest when the lung expands, but didn't allow it to return. This eliminated the need for hooking up to strong suction, and simply hooked up to a bag, allowing the patient to walk around with it. He introduced it in 1965, and was noticed by the military the next year. These simplified chest tubes were part of the packs the U.S. soldiers carried in Vietnam, allowing them to save another soldier by simply placing the tube in a chest wound as an emergency treatment for a pneumothorax, that is, when air fills the chest cavity causing the lung to collapse. These tubes are still in use today mainly for these kind of air leaks, as they are less successful with blood or thick secretions. And, since they are basically one-way valves, you have to make sure you insert it in the right direction. Alright, on to the main show. At this point in our story, Dr. Heimlich is now the Director of Surgery at the Jewish Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. In Heimlich's telling, his inspiration for his famous maneuver came in 1972 after reading an article about accidental deaths, where he felt that too many people were dying from choking. At the time, the only options were to perform an emergency tracheotomy, which is to cut a hole in the windpipe below the obstruction, a task that would be difficult in an ER setting, let alone by an untrained layperson at home or in a restaurant, using an external device of some kind to remove foreign objects, again, not very practical, 
or hitting the choking victim on the back. Heimlich wanted to attack the problem from below the blockage and thought about the residual air in a person's lungs even at the end of breathing out or exhalation, which could be used like a bellows is used to stoke a fire. He experimented on dogs using an inflated balloon at the end of a breathing tube to mimic obstruction. Once he realized that the chest wall was too rigid to push the air out, he came up with pushing on the diaphragm, which is the big muscle that moves the lungs and sits between the chest and the abdomen, by pushing on the belly. He initially called this method subdiaphragmatic pressure, not as catchy. Given the importance of this maneuver, I'm going to lay out the five basic steps, even though I would guess that most of my listeners would have some familiarity with this. 1. Stand behind the victim and reach around the person's waist with both arms. 2. Make a fist with one hand. 3. Place the thumb side of your fist below the ribcage just above the belly button. 4. Grasp the fist with your other hand and press the fist inward and upward. 5. Perform the technique firmly and repeat until the choking object is dislodged from the airway. Heimlich wrote this up as a sort of commentary piece in the magazine Emergency Medicine in an article called, quote, Pop Goes the Cafe Coronary, end quote, which was published June 1st, 1974, hence June 1st being National Heimlich Maneuver Day. FYI, a cafe coronary is a nickname for choking on food, as people often mistake choking for a heart attack. Heimlich went very public with this maneuver and became a national celebrity, even appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Unfortunately, I can't find old footage of that. However, he did have a cartoon on ABC called Dr. Henry's Emergency Lessons for People, six one-minute animated segments to teach kids how to react to an assortment of emergency situations, and amazingly, these are on YouTube, so I'll put up a couple on Facebook. But despite the public education campaign blitz, the subsequent stories of success with individuals all around the country and what seemed like a fairly sound theory behind it, the next controversy in Heimlich's career would begin, which carries on to this day. The American Red Cross, the main educator of the public on emergency first aid, initially recommended back blows with the heel of the hand for choking victims, as did the American Heart Association. After significant and public battles, they adopted the Heimlich maneuver, adding it to back blows in 1976. By 1986, both had stopped recommending back blows with Heimlich himself nicknaming them death blows, claiming they caused obstructions to move further down the windpipe and worsening the obstruction. But in 2006, the American Red Cross reintroduced back blows as the initial response to choking, using a five and five approach, meaning five back blows followed by five abdominal thrusts, which is what they called Heimlich Maneuver, without actually saying his name. The American Heart Association has stayed with just the abdominal thrusts. There's been much back and forth, mainly on the research, or lack thereof, proving one approach over the other. Now, I actually had no idea it was so controversial, and the controversy doesn't stop there. Heimlich actually recommends using his maneuver for drowning victims, and even claims it can help asthmatics and patients with cystic fibrosis to clear their airways. Now, don't take that as an endorsement. I'm just reporting his claims. Okay, two more topics to cover, and stay with me. These are a bit briefer and very interesting. So in the 1980s, Heimlich turned his attention to patients that require supplementary or extra oxygen due to lung disease. Typically, this meant wheeling around an oxygen tank, which was connected to tubing that delivered the oxygen into your nostrils by so-called nasal prongs, a cumbersome solution which caused patients some embarrassment and difficulty as they tend to fall out at night while sleeping. Heimlich came up with the idea of a microtrach, which is a tiny 3.5 inch long plastic tube that is passed directly into the windpipe or trachea by a small incision through the skin and then a needle puncturing through the trachea, then passing a wire in through the hole and finally passing the tube through itself. This has a number of advantages, 
in that it provides oxygen basically directly into the lungs with little to no waste, requiring far less oxygen. It can be hidden from view by a collar and can be done as a quick outpatient procedure. It sounds like an elegant solution, but I don't know that it's caught on as much as his other work. But there's no controversy here, at least as far as I know. Well, this leads me to the final controversy, and this one is a bit strange. So let me give you some background. In the era before antibiotics, many infectious diseases would run a course that's not seen today. The sexually transmitted disease syphilis is a prime example. After years of infection, often 10 to 25 years, it would eventually involve the nervous system, which was called neurosyphilis, causing physical as well as psychiatric symptoms that would eventually lead to death. Many patients wound up on psychiatric wards, which is where Dr. Julius Wagner von Gurig, a psychiatrist in Vienna, would see many patients. He came up with the idea of intentionally infecting patients with malaria, remember bad air from an earlier podcast, as the intermittent fevers it caused thought to cure disease. He published this work in 1919 under the title, quote, On the Impact of Malaria on the Paralysis of the Insane, end quote. He actually won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this work in 1927 and is considered the father of malariotherapy, which is what it's called. So what does that have to do with Heimlich? Well, in the 1990s, he became interested in this area of study as a treatment for patients infected with the AIDS virus known as HIV. He was involved in some questionable research projects in China and Africa, which did claim to have success. He also claims it works in treating Lyme disease and even cancer. This, more than anything, has brought a lot of criticism down on him. And the final twist in our tale, his biggest critic is his own son, Peter, who runs a website devoted entirely to debunking basically the entire career of Dr. Henry Heimlich, all of his works, and also calls his character into question. Must make Thanksgiving pretty awkward. Now, Dr. Heimlich, now a 96-year-old resident of a senior living facility, was in the news recently. And in a bit of fortuitous timing, this was posted on Twitter by Skeptical Scalpel, who you should definitely be following if you're not already. In a newspaper article from May 26 of this year, a claim was made that Dr. Heimlich saved another resident from choking using his own technique, but more surprisingly, it claimed that this was the first time the doctor himself had ever done it. By the next day, however, the paper printed a corrected version, which explained that Dr. Heimlich had in fact performed the maneuver to save someone in the past, most recently in downtown Cincinnati in 2001, which was well covered in the media at the time. Wow, that was a lot of material to cover, much of it interesting, at least to me, and surprisingly full of controversy. Regardless, I think it's safe to say that Dr. Heimlich has contributed to the history of surgery in a number of positive ways, that his maneuver has saved countless lives, and that he has led an interesting life, to say the least. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll take a look at another surgical family, the Laforts, which will be a bit briefer, but no less interesting podcast. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.